Welcome to The Point of Order, a podcast that facilitates and encourages citizen involvement in Parkersburg, West Virginia's local government. Visit us online at thepoo.net. That's thepoo.net. Or email us at thepointoforder at gmail.com and visit us on Facebook. We are your show hosts. I am Kim Corm. And I'm John Wiseman. The world suffers a lot, not because the violence of bad people, but because of the silence of good people. Napoleon Bonaparte. Good people, speak up. Dictators know that they need three things. You know, if you're going to be a dictator in a country, you need to have control of three things. That's Dave Stryker, author and webmaster for changingminds.org. Why is Dave on the Pooh podcast? Well, I sought him out. I went on a journey. I was trying to figure out how you go from getting a dictator, our past mayor, to retire, to changing your city, where the citizens are involved again, are vibrant and own it. So I looked and searched for topics and help on how you change, how you change minds. I found Dave in England and we had a conversation. Dictators know that they need three things. You know, if you're going to be a dictator in a country, you need to have control of three things. First, you have to be in control of the physical forces, the military and the police. So that's level one. So, so level two then is you want to control information. So you control, you know, the media, the newspapers and so on. Yeah. And thirdly, once they've got those, is education. And those, those three things you can kind of, can think about, you know, what, you know, obviously you can't change the police, but the forces, you know, the legal forces, you know, the, the forces that effectively have the ability to constrain people and courts and uh, who's the judges and, and, a dictator controls the police force. Check. The mayor was in charge of the police. The dictator controls information. Check. That's why the poo exists. We were getting more information out because the newspaper and the television station were unable to get it out in the way it needed to get out. The full story. The complete story. The dictator controls education. Check. I've been asking for whistleblowers training for almost a year now. Whistleblowers training is required for employees of the city, and it tells employees how they can speak up when they're asked to do something wrong, or if they know that something is being done wrong. That training hasn't been given for years. It still isn't being given. It's education. It's the control of education. Check, check, check. We just eliminated a dictator. We allowed our city to become under the control of a dictator. But we stopped it. That's no longer the case. The problem is, the entire engine created by the dictator is still in place. Yes, indeed, that engine is still chugging along. And Gary's rant, coming up next, will give us a perfect example of that. Shut up and sit down.
So just when I think that nothing else would surprise me in this city, boom, it happens again. You see, a group of citizens gathered this past Saturday at Southwood Park for a discussion on the park and its potentials. They gathered around, talked a bit, then the group of almost 40 grabbed up supplies furnished by the Solid Waste Authority to pick up trash and debris. In two hours, there was a very noticeable difference. Great work, everyone. The group then returned to the shelter to discuss any concerns and ideas. It was a great and fun day. Now here's the part that blows my mind. Councilwoman Coram had asked John Reed with the Solid Waste Authority for supplies for this cleanup. She asked that he drop them off in the city clerk's office and she could get them at council meeting. While he was in there talking about dropping them off, the city councilwoman from District 2 was there and asked what park they were for. John told her Southwood, which by the way, it was chosen because of some of the new boardwalk work that had been done and we wanted to show the citizens. Well, needless to say, when she found out what park it was for, she went off, saying stuff like, that park is in my district and I didn't know anything about it, and told John not to give us supplies. Not to give us supplies. Then gets on her phone and calls the public works director and tells him to make sure that we don't get the supplies and to tell the mayor what is going on. Unbelievable. First, to think because this park is in her district it is hers or she has special control of. And secondly, to deny materials to a group of citizens that's doing nothing but good and actually help, helping the looks of her park. Truly unbelievable. The next week in public forum during the council meeting, a citizen stood up and announced about the meeting and our intentions. Ms. District 2 took a moment to say, well, how great this is, and she knew nothing about it. She would have come, but she had plans for her father's 90th birthday party. I about blew a fuse. Having known for a week what she had tried to do, and then lying while sitting on council bench saying she knew nothing of? Lies, lies. Oh, and even more lies to come. Now this is the councilwoman that sits on mayoral candidate hopeful Tom Joyce's committee, which, by the way, that's illegal in itself by city charter section 4.106. It spells it out. I'll let you read it for yourself. But anyway, this former council member mayoral candidate is breaking the rules of the charter he so hopes to be sworn in to uphold. Then the fact that Councilwoman District 2 put city and county workers in positions that they never should have been in, threw them under the bus. And all this while rumor has it that she hopes for the personnel manager position under Tom Joyce. It really makes me wonder about the people this guy hangs out with, liars and lawbreakers, well, and, and himself. This is what I have named the lynching of the Joyce campaign. Last nail in the coffin as I see it. After council meeting, a resident approached Ms. District 2 and asked if it was true that she had tried to deny the supplies. She denied this, sticking with her story that she knew nothing of the event. Lie. Then she told the residents that she knew what they were doing, like this was some big plan against her. Even made comments like, good luck getting the supplies, and said, Christy Walcott has rang my phone off the hook and sends emails constantly. She knows how to get a hold of me, and Sharon Cool knows how to get a hold of me as well. 
Well, Sharon Trump, who built this communication wall between citizens and yourself? Telling Christy she is not in your district, call her own council person, as well as blocking emails and not returning reply emails. Why would anyone want to contact you? To be snubbed? I'll pass on that. Then the charm came out of her mouth. I've been working on this for the past year and a half. Really? Her butthurt pie hole opens up again and lies once again to a resident. She has been working on this for a year and a half. Wow. Two citizens put this together in a week and a half with a few social media posts and had almost 40 people show up. Well, I'll just say it. You must really suck at your job. In fact, do us all a favor and resign your incompetent lying carcass off of city council. So I took it upon myself to contact John Reed at the Solid Waste Authority, and he was more than happy to get me the supplies and the tools that he had to help with this event. He also validated the ruthless, underhanded attempt to block these supplies and tools, as well as not being able to understand why such a thing would happen. He was just perplexed about it. Well, anyway, thanks, John, for getting this stuff. I would also like to add, since Saturday, Christy Walcott had contacted Rick Limley, our public works director, and he is pleased to work with us on projects to help beautify our city parks. Thanks, Rick. And also thanks to all that showed up on Saturday and cared. If you would like to help at some point, please search for Friends of Parkersburg Parks on Facebook. Once again, Friends of Parkersburg Parks. I am just still astonished that a councilwoman would be so hateful and try to undermine such a wonderful project. City cost, $0.00. City savings, almost 80 man hours. And then to lie to so many from the council bench. Let's see if she has the balls to admit and apologize from that same seat. Or better yet, just step down from it. It's time to cut down the tree, people. It's time to cut down the tree. Rant not even hardly started yet. How do you take it from where it is now to where you want it to be? And how do you even know what you want it to be? Let's go talk to Jorge from the city of Albany. Let's talk to a city who is amazingly transparent and focuses on customer service. Maybe this is an example of what we can be. Um, uh, my name is uh, Jorge, Jorge Salinas. And uh, I've been with the city of Albany now about 10 years. Uh, my role here in the city, I'm assistant city manager, uh, chief information officer, CIO. And uh, I'm also uh, responsible for, uh, besides the IT department, I'm responsible for uh, performance management and uh, energy management. So our strategic plan is uh, a normal strategic plan. We modified it in a way that um, we have some targets, we have our goals, we have objectives, and then we have some metrics that have been established and then and see how well we're Can I we're stop doing. you right here for a second? Yeah. Um, yeah. Great neighborhood objectives. 
create and sustain a city of diverse neighborhoods where residents feel good about where they live. I mean, to see oh. that in a goal statement and a strategic plan is so startling <laughs> to me. It's wonderful. But to me, that's a whole mindset. So that mindset, I mean, is that something you've always had there? Is that just the nature of I, your community? I think it's a combination of the, the way employees uh are are here with a, a mission to provide good services, and they value that and and understand that we exist because taxpayers are out there supporting us to do the things they need. So it, it's uh, basically managing the city, and this is you know our council and mayor and our our management team involved in making sure that we are all focused on the same you know goal, vision, and goal for the city. And and you can see it's uh, from top to bottom. Everybody feels the same way, um, and. And uh, that's how we are, we've been doing it for, for a long time now. Wow. I spoke in length with Jorge. He was amazing. He showed me so many things on their website that I wish we had. It's worth a visit to the cityofalbany.net to check out how fantastic and transparent their website is. I really appreciate Jorge's time and highly recommend that you give their site a visit. So how do we get from where we are to something like the city of Albany? Back to David Stryker. There's one thing I heard over and over again from the people I interviewed, and this is it. Absolutely, things do change through stories, and, and absolutely positives help as well. Have you heard of something called appreciative inquiry? So David said we change things one conversation at a time through stories and talked about appreciative inquiry. So I went on a hunt to look for more information about appreciative inquiry and I found Barbara Lewis. Barbara, let's have you introduce yourself and tell people who you are, your expertise and, and what you do. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, I'm a co-owner of an organization called Rocky Mountain Center for Positive Change. And what we do is work with organizations and communities to uh, help them implement strength-based processes to bring about innovation and collaboration. We're connected to a larger organization that's actually a global company called the Corporation for Positive Change. And um, the, a lot of what we do is... Um, in a field called appreciative inquiry. And that is about um, studying what gives life to human systems when they're at their best. Studying what brings life to human systems when they're at their best. Now that's what I'm talking about. And during my very enjoyable conversation with Barbara, she said the same thing I heard David say. It's about the stories we tell. We create our culture. Our culture is, are, is really comprised of the stories that we tell about ourselves. So in the work that we do, what we find is that so much of our society focuses on problems. So we put our attention to the problems, and those are the stories we tell, and that's what we get. We get more problems, and we get you know, more complex problems. <laughs> so you know, the, the idea is if... If what we focus on is going to become a reality, then let's focus on the stories about when we're at our best. Focus on stories of when we're at our best. 
How do we get from where we are right now to there? That's what I asked Barbara. Because we teach an exercise called the flip. Um, and it's basically reframing. Um, most elected officials know about reframing. <laughs> but it really is very important. It's saying, okay, if you didn't have this problem, what would it be like? And tell me what you want. I need to know what you want because that's what you really want me to do. I don't need to know as much about what you don't want because the whole idea is we want to put the energy into what we want. We don't want to get more of what we don't want. People find a common ground through stories that they don't find through our typical conversations. All right, let's talk about what we want. I've got some great stories to share. The first one was from a candidate interview with Joey Knotts. He shared a story about our history that just lit me up and gave me so much hope. It was a wonderful story and a story of vision, even though it was about our history. Let's listen to Joey's story. One time, Kim, in my opinion, we were, we were literally the greatest city in West Virginia. We truly were. A lot of people forget how historically significant the city was as far back as the Civil War. Uh, yeah. I actually told a couple of my friends when we were speaking on the issue of equal rights, with everything that's going on lately in the presidential election on a federal level, as so many times if a person is in disagreement over a certain subject, they are labeled as a racist or a chauvinist yeah. or, or as someone who simply doesn't like a, a particular ethnic background. And I remind people that Parkersburg was the first city south of the Mason-Dixon line to have an all-freed school for former slaves. Yeah. Now, as, as far back as the 1860s, if Parkersburg was so progressive that we had the wherewithal to erect a school where African-American children, former slave children, could go to school without fear of retribution, without fear of being hanged, in 1860s, then surely in the year 2016, Parkersburg could be a town who could once again move forward and look at how much possibility not only we have in our industry, in our economy, but in our citizens. I think somewhere along the way, Kim, we just kind of lost sight of how great of a town we live in. Thank you, Joey Knotts. What a great story. Joey is a candidate for Parkersburg City Council District 1. Next, we're going to hear from Eric Engel. He is the chair of the Mid-Ohio Valley Climate Action Group. And he's going to share his story about candidates and citizens gatherings. Eric's segment is actually 14 minutes long. We're only going to air a few minutes of it. But if you stay tuned to the end of the podcast, you can hear it in its entirety. What's up, Parkersburg and the Pooh Podcast? This is Eric Engel. I am the, uh, in case you're unfamiliar with me, the group leader of Mid-Ohio Valley Climate Action. Uh, I, along with the Pooh, uh, co-sponsor the uh, Meet the Candidates events. We had a very successful one February 4th for municipal candidates very successful one March 3rd for county candidates and uh, MOVCA also sponsored, even though the Pooh wasn't involved, uh, 
we co-sponsored with the Wood County Democratic Executive Committee the Judicial Candidates Night on March 10th, which was also extremely successful. We've got another one coming up here, April 7th, uh, as you may be aware, for state candidates. And I wanted to include some information here uh, that I think is important prior to that. Thank you, Eric. Stay tuned at the end of the episode to hear the points Eric would like to share with you. Our third story is from Christy Walcott, a phenomenal citizen. She is certainly one person who speaks up. Good people speak up. This is Christy Walcutt, and I wanted to invite you all to join a new group called Friends of Parkersburg's Parks. We are a citizen-based group aimed at improving our city parks. We believe if citizens become involved and invest in our city, then this will be a step in the right direction in restoring pride and ownership in Parkersburg. This past Saturday, almost 40 volunteers met at Southwood Park to clear debris, tree limbs, litter, and just do a general post-winter cleanup. This group included some children as well helping, which is wonderful to see because this will be their city one day, so why not get them involved at a young age? We worked for about two hours, and there was a marked improvement when we were finished. We are going to return to Southwood on April 9th at 10 a.m. to finish the cleanup, do some painting, and also clean out the flower beds. If you have an hour to spare and would like to help, we'd love to have you. We're going to meet by the large shelter next to the water slide. Many thanks to John Reed from the Solid Waste Authority, who's assisting us with the cleanup supplies, and also the Public Works Director, Rick Limley, who's been very open to our assisting, which we appreciate so much. Going forward, we will meet on the fourth Saturday of the month at a different park in the city. If you'd like to join our efforts, you can find us at Friends of Parkersburg's Parks on Facebook, or you can email us at friendspkbparks at gmail.com for more information. We have a group of about 110 people at this time who have a lot of great ideas. We'd love to have you join us as well. All are welcome. We know together we can do great things. Thank you. Thank you, Christy. The Friends of Parkersburg Parks is a true success story. An amazing group of citizens who are taking back their city, showing their pride, and putting their energy and efforts together to show what a group of concerned and loving citizens can do. And that brings our 12th episode of the Point of Order podcast to a close. Before we leave, we'd like to thank Jorge Salinas, Barbara Lewis, and David Stryker for showing us a way to change our story. Let's start talking about our visions and our goals. So to wrap this episode up, I'm going to leave you with three very encouraging messages from our guests. With the three stories that we just had and the encouragement from our guests, the success of the Friends of Parkersburg's Parks Groups, I'm really excited to see what tomorrow holds. Good people, speak up. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Glad, glad to, to help. I and mean, look at this technology across the world. Isn't it wonderful? Well, thank you very much indeed, and thank you for thinking of me. And I, I hope I helped in some way. Like, you, know, what, you know, one of my goals with, with the website was touch the world. 
yeah it's what can you you can touch the world so i so this is a little bit of touching the world okay yeah i wish you luck in the process and i know you guys will be able to achieve this and much more so um wish you luck there thank you that was wonderful to say i love hearing that <laughs> leave our listeners with before we disconnect oh um I would invite everyone to think about what you want more of in the world and how you can ask positive questions about that as you go about your life. It can be with your family, with your friends, with your community members, and um, see what you discover. Until next time, you can find us online at thepoo.net. You can find us on Facebook. You can email us at thepointoforder at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram at thepointoforder. Most music courtesy of bensound.com. What's up, Parkersburg and the Pooh Podcast? This is Eric Engel. I am the, uh, in case you're unfamiliar with me, the group leader of Mid-Ohio Valley Climate Action. Uh, I, along with the Pooh, uh, co-sponsor the uh, Meet the Candidates events. We had a very successful one February 4th for municipal candidates, very successful one March 3rd for county candidates, and uh, MOVCA also sponsored, even though the Pooh wasn't involved, we co-sponsored with the Wood County Democratic Executive Committee the Judicial Candidates Night on March 10th, which was also extremely successful. We've got another one coming up here, April 7th, uh, as you may be aware, for state candidates. And I wanted to include some information here uh, that I think is important prior to that. Um Primarily, this information is going to be targeted at State Senator Donna Boley, who is the District 3 Senator in West Virginia, represents Wood County. Uh, I'm grateful to Senator Boley for uh, voting against Senate Bill 267, uh, which recently passed and makes it harder for citizens by petition to remove municipal and county candidates, or excuse me, office holders from office. Um, and just kind of interferes with our democracy here. Uh, she did vote against it, and I appreciate that. I also appreciate her and the rest of the West Virginia State Senate, especially the Senate Education Committee that she vice-chairs, for killing an amendment to House Bill 4014, which when the amendment passed, would have uh, it passed the House of Delegates, and it would have, had it been left in the legislation, prevented the teaching of global climate science to West Virginia science students in public schools, and that was just abhorrent. Uh, Frank Deem, who represents Wood County in the House of Delegates, was all for it, spoke in favor of it, and uh, I appreciate uh, Senator Boley for joining with her colleagues in the State Senate to shoot that amendment down. However, uh, there are some things that Senator Boley and all of our delegates in the House of Delegate uh, in West Virginia, as well as Senator Bob Ashley, who also represents District 3 in West Virginia, all of these folks need to hear. And it pertains to right to work, 
West Virginia becoming the 26th right-to-work state in the country, and the repeal of prevailing wage. And this is something that I know union folks are going to show up on April 7th and talk a lot about. But I wanted to give the podcast a little information ahead of time for those who may not know it pertaining to right to work and repeal of the prevailing wage. And I'm going to read some excerpts from some studies here from the Economic Policy Institute just quickly. And then my portion of the podcast will be over. But I think these are really important highlights to make prior to April 7th uh, when we have a chance to talk to. I know Senator Boley has RSVP'd. I don't know if other office holders will. Uh, first of all, right to work. The... According to an uh, Economic Policy Institute analysis called Right to Work States Still Have Lower Wages, dated April 22, 2015, the following is true. Wages in right to work states are 3.1% lower than those in non right to work states after controlling for a full complement of individual demographic and socioeconomic factors, as well as state macroeconomic indicators. This translates into right-to-work being associated with $1,558 lower annual wages for a typical full-time, full-year worker. So that's $1,558 lower, fewer annual wages for a full-time, full-year worker. The relationship between right-to-work status and wages remains economically and statistically significant under alternative specifications of our econometric model. Here's an important note. Under federal law, No one can be forced to join a union as a condition of employment, and the Supreme Court has made clear that workers cannot be forced to pay dues used for political purposes. So-called right-to-work legislation goes one step further and entitles employees to the benefits of a union contract, including the right to have the union take up their grievance if their employer abuses them without paying any of the cost. This means that if an employer mistreats a worker who does not pay a union representation fee, the union must prosecute that worker's grievance just as it would a dues-paying members, even if it costs tens of thousands of dollars. Non-dues-paying workers would also receive the higher wages and benefits their dues-paying co-workers enjoy. Right-to-work laws have nothing to do with whether people can be forced to join a union or contribute to a political cause they do not support. That is already illegal. Nor do right-to-work laws have anything to do with the right to have a job or be provided employment. At their core, right-to-work laws seek to hamstring unions' ability to help employees bargain with their employers for better wages, benefits, and working conditions. Given that unionization raises wages both for individual union members as well as for non-union workers in unionized sectors, it is not surprising that research shows that both union and non-union workers in right-to-work states have lower wages and fewer benefits on average than comparable workers in other states. That's from the Economic Policy Institute. Now, when it comes to the repeal of prevailing wage, from a study conducted by the Economic Policy Institute, the analysis was called the Economic, Fiscal, and Social Impacts of State Prevailing Wage Laws, Choosing Between the High Road and the Low Road in the Construction Industry, dated February 9, 2016. And it has this to say, Opponents of prevailing wage laws claim that repealing or weakening the wage policy will save taxpayer dollars, yet 75% of recent peer-reviewed studies indicate that construction costs are not affected by prevailing wages. However, the absence of prevailing wages increases taxpayer burdens by increasing the likelihood that construction workers will earn incomes below the poverty level, become more dependent on public assistance, and will not have health insurance and retirement benefits. Furthermore, prevailing wages perform an important economic development function by reducing the leakage of construction funds, jobs, income, and spending from the local economy. 
Weakening or repealing prevailing wages does not reduce construction costs, but increases poverty and decreases economic activity. In fact, weakening or repealing state-level prevailing wage laws in the 25 states that currently have stronger average wage policies would have negative economic, fiscal, and social impacts on the U.S. economy. That is actually a quite lengthy study. That's just an excerpt I took from it. But if you have a chance, I repeat, the study is an Economic Policy Institute analysis called The Economic, Fiscal, and Social Impacts of State Prevailing Wage Laws, Choosing Between the High Road and the Low Road in the Construction Industry, February 9, 2016. You can read the entirety of the study. There's a great deal of terrific information out there from EPI on both right to work and repeal of prevailing wage. So when we look at that, and we look at these detailed analyses that show that right to work and the repeal of prevailing wage are not right for West Virginia's working families. We have to wonder why Senator Boley, who I have commended here on, on other works, was quoted in the Charleston Gazette just a couple of weeks ago, saying that the passage of both right to work and the repeal of the prevailing wage was, and I quote, just like, you know, a partisan thing, end quote. That doesn't really sound like the kind of language you want to hear from someone with decades spent in the West Virginia State Senate and someone who's been entrusted with this public office position to work for and defend West Virginia's working families. A partisan thing, she calls it. Well, if you look at these carefully detailed analyses of the Economic Policy Institute, this partisan thing is costing $1,558 for the average full-time, full-year worker in West Virginia. This partisan thing is not decreasing construction costs, but is still increasing out-of-pocket out of taxpayer money costs for workers in the construction industry who have to spend more time possibly being laid off and receiving benefits, benefits excuse me, from the federal and state level to provide for them and theirs. This is bad policy. And this is bad policy that is part of a track record of bad policy in this particular legislative session. We've had a lot of time, money, and political capital spent on, for example, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act law, which didn't make it this time, but will probably rear its ugly head again. Uh, that would have been, had it passed, nothing more than uh, a floodgate of frivolous litigation and uh, an open, pretty much open ticket legalization of discrimination, especially against the LGBTQ community in West Virginia. I read the legislation. It wasn't that lengthy, but it was awful. Um, and other legislation like constitutional carry. Uh, saying that folks 21 and older do not have to go through a permitting or training process in order to carry a concealed firearm in the state of West Virginia. Uh, law enforcement statewide has spoken out heavily against this. The governor vetoed it. The legislature passed it anyway after overriding Governor Tomlin's veto. Terrible legislation. Uh, there's other pieces of legislation this session that just don't make any sense, like the aforementioned Senate Bill 267 making it much harder for citizens to remove, by petition, their municipal and county elected officials. 
16 Democrats, including gubernatorial candidate Jeff Kessler, voted in favor of that, and I, in the state Senate, that is, and I have no idea why. And I think that certain delegates and state senators need to explain themselves. I have emailed all 16, including Senator Kessler, who are Democrats, members of my party who voted for that, for an explanation. I did that about a week or two ago, and I've gotten no response. We have hundreds of millions of dollars in deficit in this state, not covered in our budget, even though our state constitution says we have to balance our budget. The effort to pass a budget this fiscal year has been put off, and the governor is going to have to convene a special session after the end of the regular session of the legislature in order to get a budget passed at this point later in the spring than it should be. And rather than trying to recover some of this lost revenue the right way, our state legislature is asking recipients of PEIA, Public Employee Retirement and Health Care, to pay more out of pocket for their retirement and health care when they're already overburdened with those costs. And they're cutting this coal severance tax. Now I'm here to tell you that cutting the coal severance tax is not going to save the coal industry in the state of West Virginia or anywhere else. It's like leaving money on a sinking Titanic, and that money will help contribute to the melting of the, of the glacier after the Titanic has sunk. That's the fact of the matter. The bottom line is we've had a terrible legislative session. And coming from a Mid-Ohio Valley Climate Action perspective, I would also like to say that it is important for the West Virginia State Legislature for county government, for municipal government, and, and most certainly for our national government, our federal government, to take anthropogenic, that is human-caused, global climate change seriously. It is the issue of our time. It cannot and must not be ignored. The effects, both short and long-term, are potentially catastrophic. And with each passing day, week, and month, new global surface temperatures are being are occurring that are breaking previous global surface temperature records. The science can no longer be ignored. Even public polling by groups like Gallup is showing that society at large is starting to perk up and pay close attention to this based on what the science is showing. And I, have to, I speak on behalf of MOVCA and on behalf of concerned climate activists and just people all over the world in saying that we must do everything we can to honor and live up to the Paris Climate Accord that was made among 195 countries, including the U.S. in December in Paris, and keep global surface temperatures at or below 2 degrees Celsius, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial norms, a baseline period of 1880 to 1920. We have to do that. For our children and grandchildren's sake and all future generations, we have to do it because we are leaving them possibly an uninhabitable world, uninhabitable, excuse me, world for not only for mankind but for countless species of flora and fauna. So please keep that in mind as well as we talk to our state officials, candidates, and office holders on April 7th. I look forward to seeing you all there, and I'm glad to be a part of the Pooh podcast. Thank you very much.